Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello, and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, I sit down with Dina Prestos, who is the founder and CEO of Indigo River, located in the New York City, New York area. And we talk about Wildflower Studios, which is also located in the New York area and is a vertical production studio that is located on the shoreline. Kind of an interesting thing about Dina, she is a waterfront architect, so she has kind of created created this niche market of doing waterfront design. So she is, yeah, has her master's in civil engineering and is also a licensed architect and also has a degree from Harvard Business School. So kind of a very unique background that she's bringing to Indigo River. So they are actually a transdisciplinary firm that focuses on waterfront design. So the waterfront, especially in New York City, is kind of a unique location. So there are several different jurisdictions that have authority at the waterfront, and they all have kind of a few different stipulations or rules and codes that need to be followed. So it takes a diverse background to kind of understand all of these jurisdictions. So that was kind of Dina's approach, I guess, to growing Indigo River and kind of bringing in all of these different disciplines that are experts in these different jurisdictions and different parts of design. So a very holistic approach that, you know, if you're doing work on the waterfront, you're able to hire Indigo River and they're able to kind of satisfy many of those different facades so that, you know, a lot of times an owner is hiring each individual specialty and hoping that everything is covered and all of the bases are covered instead of this kind of holistic transdisciplinary approach 
where, you know, one firm is hired and kind of takes care of all of that. So very fascinating. We talked about the future of architecture as well and kind of what it looks like to have more specialization within architecture and what value that would bring to the client. We also dug into sustainability and kind of the difference between sustainable design and resilient design and different ways that we as professionals can have an impact on the environment. So sometimes that is beyond just the designs that we do. Dina and Indigo River, they're actually getting into the construction side of things and have a vested interest in a training program for offshore wind generation. Very cool and fascinating thing. So Dina actually grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, where her and her family lived off the grid for several months a year and now is located in New York City. So it was very evident digging into that how kind of that attachment and connection to nature comes through in an urban area of New York City and how she has brought that natural touch or nature into her designs at the waterfront. So it it was very fascinating to see that progression of kind of her roots of where she grew up and how that's brought into her design. So this is definitely not typical as far as an engineering or architectural firm. And I love just that creativity of crafting things into what you want them to be. I think lots of us as entrepreneurs, that's one of the most alluring things to owning our own business or creating our own business is to craft something that serves our passions so that we can kind of give the best output into the world in a passionate and creative way. So with that, I will hand this over to Dina and we will get into talking about waterfront architecture. Dina, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We have a lot of things to dig into. But one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about first, so you started your own company, Indigo River, and you are also an architect, so a design professional. And I just was curious, I guess, as to kind of how that all came to be. Like, how did you decide to start your own firm? I think it's super cool that it's like this creative side and also the technical side and just how that merges together. But how did you come up with the idea to start your own firm? So the long and short of it is, and it is very much a merger of creative and technical and and many other attributes as well, but I was looking for something that I couldn't find. And so that was the impetus to create it. And that's how I came to create Indigo River. And what I mean by that was I, so my background is in architecture as well as civil engineering. And throughout my career, I sat on many different sides of the table. I worked as a contractor. I worked as a design engineer. I worked as a design architect. I worked as an owner's rep. And there were many different parts of my career all centered around the waterfront. But I was looking to continue exercising the different muscles that I had started to grow. And I felt like as I was looking for more senior roles, I was being put into kind of a box or a gutter of this track or that track. And I wanted to continue exploring different tracks. And so when I couldn't find exactly what I was looking for, I decided to create it. And luckily, or through a lot of hard work and dedication, it's continued to grow. We're in our sixth year and we've attracted many different disciplines that have kind of joined our mission in in terms of what we do, which is focusing on waterfront solutions through climate adaptation measures. 
That's so cool. And I, I can totally relate to that as coming up with something that's unique to you, right? And I think when we are true to ourselves or to the things that we are and our passions, all of them, right? Like that's when the best output is. And this is really going to tie into, I think, Indigo River's kind of transdisciplinary approach. But like, so many times we are put in one avenue or the other, and you guys kind of bring this holistic approach, which I can't wait to dig into, but it sounds like that kind of was arrived at based on the passions that you have, right? Right. And that was, for better or worse, I had exposure into many different kind of areas within the industry, within architecture, within engineering, within construction, and different project types and different client types and different types of relationships. And so I didn't want to kind of stunt growth in any one area. And I wanted to continue developing particularly areas that didn't come naturally to me. I mean, I think that was initially what led me toward engineering from architecture and and full circle of come back to embrace architecture. But wanting to kind of round out any area that I felt like, whether or not you want to call it a weakness or an opportunity for improvement, my philosophy has always been that whether it's career trajectory or sports performance or whatever it is, whatever your weakness is will be kind of the thing that limits your trajectory, not your strength. And so the strengths, the things that come naturally great, continue kind of feeding them. But really several times throughout my career and my life have pivoted to refocus on areas that didn't come naturally to be able to round out and reinform the areas that did come naturally. I love that. And I think like the easy thing to do would be easy relative term would be to start an architectural firm and focus on one thing, right? But like you, the sky's the limit, like you weren't boxed in. And so you had this dream of something much larger than that. And I love seeing now like six years into that where that has taken you. So let's talk about that a little bit. So the project that we'll be talking about today is the Wildflower Studios, which is actually backed by Robert De Niro. I think it's one of his projects and it's located on the waterfront in New York City, if I'm correct, right? Yep. It's on Steinway Creek in Astoria, Queens. Okay, so it's a vertical production studio, is that correct? Yep, first of its kind. I mean, you look historically at film studios, and we actually, we were not involved particularly on the much of the interior fit out of the building by any means, but just as a typology, film studios often take advantage of a lot of horizontal room. You think about production studios in California and Los Angeles, and they take a a large horizontal footprint, which is not feasible always in urban dense environments like New York City. And so this was the first of its kind to be a vertical film studio, to have stacked film studios running, you know, concurrent productions at the same time on top of each other. And so that's one bit about it. But the, the other bit about it is that it is situated on the waterfront in a flood prone area. There are many different consultants on the design team. There are, you know, the architect of record, the engineer of record, structural engineers, MEP, site civil, drainage specialists. But where we initially got involved early on in the process was as the waterfront consultant for the marine engineering. So the shoreline had kind of a derelict and derelict and dilapidated riprap shoreline, and there were some remnants of old cribbing that Initially, we looked to see if there was any way to enable recreational access, which we kind of ruled out early in the process. But our first scope was to rehabilitate the shoreline, make it safe, and then also kind of tie into a waterfront public park with a boardwalk. And that was our initial scope. And the reason I say that is because the project scope for us grew a bit in that 
because there were so many different consultants coordinating for kind of the upland for the building itself, it became apparent that, again, with the, with the building being in a AE zone, flood prone area, that there was no consultant really taking the resiliency scope by the horns or coming up with a resiliency strategy, particularly for flood mitigation. And so that, again, just by default of us working in on and near the water and having a uh, very high comfort level working with those forces, we ended up inheriting that scope and working on the flood mitigation strategy for the entire site, which really means, you know, the first story of the building. But the initial kind of broad strokes, broad brush decisions were how spaces are programmed on that ground floor and what could be wet flood proofed or dry flood proofed. And we ended up coming up with a multi-pronged approach of how we flood proof the space. And some are permanent measures, some are temporary deployable measures. And so it, it also took speaking with the building owner and the operations team about how much of their team would be available so that if human intervention was required, we knew that they would be able to deploy the systems. And so that was kind of early on, we did a you know feasibility study of what the different technical feasible options were and overlaid that with what the operations team was able to execute and came up with and permitted the flood mitigation strategy. That's so cool. And as you're talking, Dina, I'm just thinking about this all going together. So like so many times someone is in charge of the landscaping and the site mitigation, someone is in charge of the building, and it can maybe make it look disjointed a little bit because it's like two separate independent solutions. And I'm just thinking of like you guys working together and doing all of that together, it can be split out into you know, some things are taken care of by the site, some things are taken care of by the building. And I can only imagine that that makes it much more like unified and homogeneous to have everything kind of working together. Yeah. And we so our scope kind of came out of a gap that was missed. So I'd say in terms of challenges on the project and, and you have different contract mechanisms and different types of projects, the way that they're contracted out. And in this one in particular, part of the challenge was that the owner contracted every discipline and every consultant separately. And so that, as opposed to where there's kind of a general contract and you have subconsultants embedded below, and if there is a gap, someone, you know, is on the hook to absorb it. But in this case, because there were so many disparate contracts, when scope gaps emerged, it created a new scope that someone had to fill, but still coordinate with the different disciplines. And so that was a more challenging aspect of this is not the technical of what the what the solution was, but coordinating not only between the different technical disciplines, but also understanding the different liabilities implicit in the scope and the different pieces that it touches. And so if we have, you know, an anchorage system for a, a deployable flood measure, that affects the structural, that affects the drainage, that affects the the vapor barriers, the, you know, the different components of the building and the different consultants who are responsible for them and liable for them to work. And so it was a lot of coordination. And I feel like that was the more challenging part of the project, not necessarily the technical scope, but coordinating and making sure that in the end, all of the consultants were comfortable with the solutions decided upon and also comfortable absorbing the different liabilities implicit in what the solutions were. Yeah, that's very fascinating. So you grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and now you live in New York City. And Anchorage, I can only assume, and you can speak to this if you would like, but I can only assume that it's, you know, close in touch with nature, you know, very aware of natural resources. And I'm seeing that implemented in New York City in the work that you do. So could you just maybe speak to that a little bit as to kind of how that migration occurred or just kind of what you bring to the table from that background from kind of how you grew up? 
Absolutely. So I think what you're touching on really does speak to kind of core values and, and mission of, of Indigo River, but certainly mine as an individual. And I did grow up in Anchorage, Alaska, which Anchorage is, a, you know, at the time, 300,000, 350,000 population. So it's a, you know, established city, but 15 minutes outside of Anchorage and you're in, you know, pristine, untouched wilderness. And so much of my childhood was spent in the wild, in the outdoors, appreciating certainly nature and nature's forces. And so that has permeated much of my my life and my career to continue to appreciate not only nature, but also man-made and man-made infrastructure, particularly in challenging environments and extreme environments, as is the case with Alaska, but as is also the case with New York City and the density and kind of the historical, you know, cultural things that have been built up on New York, as well as, you know, archaeological and, and having a history. So I think there are a couple different extremes to to look at the spectrum across. And one is certainly, you know, nature and man-made. Another is kind of history and environment. So Anchorage by and large, Alaska only became a state in 1958, and so it's a very young state, and New York was, you know, one of the first states. We look at the infrastructure and the built environment in the two different places, and they're completely different. And in Alaska, you have a lot of things built after the 50s, after the 60s. It's you know, in a seismic fault line, so there's a different code there, but the architecture and the engineering reflects what that code is and what those vulnerabilities are. And so you look at, you know, the skyline of Anchorage, it doesn't have many skyscrapers by any means. Most things are kind of lower to the ground and that's the result of it being in an area that's subject to earthquakes. Whereas New York City, you know, we have skyscrapers and we have, you're never getting a, a virgin that site that's never been built on. Everything that you build on within New York City has a history to what was built on it before and what was permitted or whether something was permitted on it before. This kind of old and young appreciation for even urban landscapes as well as you know extreme environments of the extreme cold or the extreme heat humidity or dryness kind of all of these different departure points for what i've had exposure to within my career and with within my life and i'll throw in there also kind of a a third stop which i, I worked in the middle east for a year which had you know completely different environmental factors and considerations. I worked on an underground building for the Army Corps of Engineers for about a year in my career before I launched Indigo River. And so that was, again, a whole nother set culturally also of just kind of the workforce, but of environmental considerations and factors. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, taking natural resources or like something that is essentially virgin and hasn't been touched and like the extreme of that to, you know, what you started with at this project site, which was a derelict site that had been dilapidated and no longer useful, you know, not beautiful. And then so like moving to one extreme, but then almost like through your work, being able to take it back into kind of a natural state. But with infrastructure as well, but still kind of give it that, like restore its beauty, like its natural beauty. And I find that so fascinating. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things, anytime we get the chance to, I mean, we work in the littoral zone, kind of where nature meets man-made. And so anytime we can really stretch that connection to embrace the nature side of it from, you know, an urban perspective, I mean, we appreciate it, but beyond that, we feel like the end user appreciates any connectivity or, you know, recreational access to the water, which in urban environments, you're in a concrete jungle to experience nature. Anytime you're on the water or at the water's edge, there is nature. And so it's another kind of point of connectivity and way to bring a different type of meaning through our work to the public. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. 
Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Okay. So what were like some of the major challenges that you had with this project? Like what were some of the things that came up during design? It sounded like there was an increase in scope there and, you know, kind of your role in the project, but what were some of the unique challenges that you saw? So the overarching bucket for challenges have to do with coordination topic. um, And that has to do also with the different consultants being, I mean, largely trying to stay in the same phase of work, but when one phase of work would kind of get ahead and then we'd have to backpedal a little bit because something else wasn't considered, like the floodproofing techniques and strategies, kind of resyncing and bringing everyone back to the same page before advancing. And that's on the one side, you know, at the design table, it's one thing to do, but through the regulatory lens, it's completely different. And so the the waterfront in New York City, I believe, is the most heavily regulated environment kind of in the world if we look at across different typologies and different agencies that have jurisdiction. And just the waterfront in New York has so many different agencies that claim jurisdiction. And even with it being a private development, it doesn't make it any less prone to these agencies. And so when, you know, from early on, kind of 30% design, we submit the joint permit application that goes to the Army Corps federal agency. It goes to the state agencies, including the Department of Environmental Conservation, Department of State, the Office of General Services. And we look beyond that, then next, you know, Department of Building or Small Business Services, who the next agencies that have jurisdiction, if it's in this case, we had an area that is open to the public, it's privately owned, but it's created as a kind of public amenity to have waterfront access. And so then the park standards that overlay what the what the design team had already started with and kind of bringing things up to different standards that whether ownership didn't realize originally or the design team kind of got ahead of themselves, it was a lot of resyncing what was going on to make sure that we were complying with the different agencies having jurisdiction and the different regulations imposed. And so that was a challenge. And then also kind of being in a flood prone area in New York City and the, the building code and the Appendix G in particular, the chapter that looks at and governs what is allowable in flood prone spaces and whether or not you can have certain different types of programming and it being a vertical film studio needing, you know, egress in and out of for regular, you know, incidents and events aside from fire. If there's a flood, you know, evacuation and a system is deployed, how do people get out? What staircases? And so there was a lot of coordination in in response to, in some cases, different and new code that has not historically been the case in New York City. And this is one of the first new builds. Oftentimes it'll be, you know, kind of standard, the 50% rehabilitation so that you're not complying to all of the latest and the new codes. But in this case, because it was a new build, many more were imposed. And so it was a lot of coordination back and forth through the design consultants, but also with their different regulators to make sure that we complied, as well as with some of the you know latest technologies within flood mitigation and deployable strategies to make sure that the products that we were specking and the, the materials that were being used all complied with the, the latest codes. 
Okay. So when you say deployable strategies, can you elaborate on that for some of our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with flood mitigation? Sure. So I'll start just kind of maybe lay the lay the foundation that most basically the, the, the two different strategies that we utilized for this project, we had wet flood proof spaces, meaning they were subject to inundation and the water could come in by code. The only program type that can allow that is storage or parking. So we had to make sure that we met that criteria. So any spaces that have parking or storage on the ground floor are subject to inundation, they have flood vents that allow the water in after a certain pressure is met. But other areas, occupiable areas in particular, like the lobby, is not allowed to be wet flood proof. That's intended for, you know, people to be using. And if people are in there, you can't allow water in there. And so the dry flood proofing techniques used in this case, we have a deployable system that is a you know, a barrier that's temporarily deployed in the event of an emergency, in the event of a, you know, hurricane warning or whatever the kind of the trigger is to deploy this this system. And so it's stored on the premises and it gets deployed even just for routine maintenance and operations to know how to deploy the system. It gets deployed on a, you know, minimum one time annually, but every time there's an event also it is deployed. And that system goes around the perimeter of these zones that are deemed dry flood proofed. And even within them, there have to be, you know, you have to maintain egress so that if there's also a fire, you know, compounding at the same time, people need to be be able to get out of the building and they can't be locked in by a perimeter barrier system that's temporary. And so there are kind of a lot of nuances to work through with the different hazards involved in complying with the code, but the, you know, the headline is for human safety. And so those are some of the different strategies that were deployed, that were used in some of the different products we have, you know, there are different barriers that are inflatable. There are different barriers that you can fill with water. There are different barriers that are like a flood and post system or door barriers, or even floodgates and hatches. So there are a lot of different products that are used in the different spaces as required. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. So were you designing for the 100-year flood elevation or what was the requirement of this project? So I don't remember the design criteria on this one, but generally speaking, when we do set up a project, we'll look at what the, you know, historically what's occurred on the site. We'll look at what the FEMA map says, what the, you know, AE zone, and if it's, yeah, 2% or 1% chance of annual flooding. We look at those factors and more than that, we talk with the building owner about, or the asset owner about what they what their goals are for the project. So I'll, by contrast, talk about another project that we also worked on in terms of flood mitigation strategy. And it was a, a warehouse facility that would dispatch, you know, mail order things. And so they had a very strict kind of financial model that they couldn't be closed more than, I think it was two or three days a year. And so they don't need their entire facility to be operational, but they do need key points within the building to be accessible and operational. And so on that one, they were willing to not look at, I mean, they, they exceeded what the code required because they had operational considerations that, again, financially, it made sense for them to invest more heavily in flood mitigation systems so that they could be open a greater percentage of the year and not worry about having to close for some of these events, whether it's once in 100 or or more than that. So I don't remember in particular what the design criteria, what the goal was for the Wildflower Project, but that kind of premise and that's how we approach it. Okay, sounds good. So do you know how high up from like a grade elevation flood proofing was required or the flood mitigation was, what was the height of that requirement? Do you know approximately? I believe the base flood elevation was at plus 15 and the design flood elevation was plus two. So from plus 15 to plus 17, you know, the waterfront kind of ramps down to the water, but with surge and with wave action, we could anticipate for there to be water entering the, the ground level. 
I think that's so fascinating because I feel like 50 years ago when there was a flood, we just dealt with a flood or put sandbags up. And you're talking 17 feet. That's two stories up from ground elevation that this building has been designed to withstand that type of flood event. And I think that's very fascinating and also super sustainable because then the goal is that 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 building is able to function just as it would prior to the flood with all these mitigation techniques. And I think that's also such a sustainable model to follow as well because it's not, okay, we had a flood, now we have to clear out all this stuff and rebuild. And that's, I think that's great. So, okay, so we kind of talked about this, just the Wildflower Studio and how things evolved. But one thing I want to talk about is your structure at Indigo River. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to fully understand it because I feel like this is a very unique approach. And I think this would be very beneficial for these types of projects that are on the waterfront. But I'm just curious as to how the project structure is set up. So are you hired as like a prime consultant under the owner? Is that typically how it works? On this one, that was the case. Uh, We were hired directly by the owner that was developing the project, the developer. On other projects, I'd say we actually, we probably have a split more like 35, 65, or maybe 35% of our portfolio is private developer led and 65 is more public works projects. And still a healthy split kind of within that, whether we are the prime consultant or whether we are a teaming member and a subconsultant to another larger prime. So we do both and we, we very much like to do both. We also often get involved after the fact on the construction side for contractors, whether it's for constructability means and methods. Working on the waterfront, there are some very nuanced and specialized approaches to constructability. And so having that kind of feedback loop and and many, I'll just step back for a second and say many of our team members have also worked like myself in construction, kind of isolated from the design world, which gives us a really good empathy when we are designing to understand what's going on in contractors' minds and particularly on the waterfront where it is a specialized type of construction. And so we work sometimes directly for a private developer, sometimes directly for a public agency, or sometimes for a larger prime consultant as a specialty subconsultant within our area of expertise. And other times we'll work as an owner's rep, kind of opposite the design team or opposite the construction team, or sometimes we'll work on the construction team, but again, all centered around the waterfront. So we're, I'd say, unique in that we don't take any one piece of that, which again was kind of by construct in the background of my experience and several other of our team members, and that's the experience that we've continued to attract is that kind of versatility and diversity of experience that we bring a lot of empathy to whether it's we're designing or the owner's rep, we have kind of, you know, flags that go up in our head because of our experience, because we sat on different sides of the table and we can anticipate, you know, fatal flaws or can come up, you know, rapid alternatives and, and be able to discuss real practical issues as well, not only kind of pen and paper design, but the implications with regard to, you know, cost or schedule or logistics, which again are all nuanced and unique in how they manifest on the waterfront. Okay. Yeah. And as you're talking too, I'm seeing there's a lot of areas where gaps show up in typical projects and you have filled those gaps. So like, for instance, like we were talking about earlier, all the different subconsultants and, you know, everyone kind of working in their silos, you guys being transdisciplinary means that you fill those gaps. And then also you just mentioned, you know, between design and construction, sometimes 
as a designer or in the office, we can hypothetically predict how something is going to look and we see it more virtually, I guess, and it is not always implemented or cannot be implemented the same way that we can design it. And so when you're on both sides of that that fence, per se, you're able to fill that gap a little better too. So yeah, I see kind of all of that is like being able to fill gaps. <laughs> Yeah, being able to pull gaps, but also being able to eliminate kind of unnecessary rework or risk or incompatibilities just through the empathy of understanding or being able to pick up the phone and call a contractor and say, hey, this is my condition. What would you do? Or this is what I'm thinking. Does that make sense? Or how would you approach this? And just having kind of loose but specific conversations when you come up with something that's not something that you've encountered before, you kind of expand your network and your resources to include different stakeholders at different points in the process, but early on so that you're not, you know, nine tenths of the way down the road before a contractor says, yeah, right, you can't build that. Or how are you going to build that? And then you have to, you know, rethink it and, and redesign it. And that also, I think, just on a personal and vulnerable note, that was very much, you know, something that was my mentality coming out of architecture and wanting a more technical understanding, just because I felt like I didn't have a good enough technical understanding coming out of architecture school, which kind of in hindsight, I don't think anyone does, but that's why you get experience as well. But again, even when I finished my master's in civil engineering, I felt like I didn't have the practical experience and I was dreading, you know, in my mind, I was thinking I'm going to be working on a project and I'm going to hear, you know, who was the architect on this or who was the engineer on this? or And I wanted to be in the field to kind of preempt and understand what the conversations were and why different materials were selected or why different methods were chosen. And so to have that and for our whole team to kind of embrace that as a philosophy also, not to only be looking at it from the design side and to design, we love to design ambitious things, but to have it kind of rooted and footing in reality and practicality as well so that things that we design can be built. Yeah, I love that. So similar to that approach, when I was in school for structural engineering, I got an internship as a surveyor because I had that same thought of like, I need to be out in the field and see how this goes together. And it's it's so enriching. I'm sure for your career, you've seen it pay off multifold or even being able to pick up the phone and call a surveyor and talk in their jargon about what it is that you need, I'm sure has has paid off in multifold. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so important. I think every design professional should have an internship in the field to see how things are implemented because the work that we do is, I mean, I don't know percentage wise, but maybe it takes 10% of the time to 90% of the time to construct. So like if we screw up in that small amount of time, like it takes tenfold to fix it in the field. So I think that's so important. And that kind of leads me to my next question too. So both you and I love construction, love being design professionals in the construction industry, but we are a little non-traditional because we are females and many times it is dominated by males. So I guess one question I have for you is, and this, our previous discussion kind of alludes to this a little bit, I guess, but what are some things that you have done to kind of establish yourself as a professional? in construction and also to kind of dispel some stereotypes that may arise sometimes. So I think early in my career, I I looked for, and I would revise this now, but look for kind of role models, positive role models, women in construction and, and build a network, a resource kind of Rolodex of, of who you can call on because you will face things that 
male counterparts won't have experience and they won't have the empathy around. And so that's kind of a way to establish a network and it's we are a minority in the field. And so it's nice to have that kind of network when things do come up. But beyond that, if you can't find it, then figuring out how to be it for others. And so that's certainly, I feel like even more rewarding is, like I said, I was looking for something that I couldn't find. So I created Indigo River. But similarly, I looked for role models many times, whether through architecture or construction and had challenges. Now I've, I've figured out and found my networks and I participate actively in them. But even when I couldn't find it, finding a way to give back or be it for someone else. So whether it's speaking at you know middle schools or high schools about your profession and kind of opening the door for others to see you in it and see you successful in it, I think is a great way to invest in our industry and a great way to start changing so that it's not, you know, furthering the the biases that do exist. And, and certainly when you're in a position of leadership, pulling others along as well. And so that it's not, hopefully, if you face a lot of adversity, hopefully you're correcting it and kind of course correcting the profession for others that won't face as much coming up behind you. Yeah. And I think just exposure too. like, I think you do such a great job of just putting yourself out there too, as like an established expert in the field and trailblazing this new field of waterfront architecture as well. I think that's great. And I always feel like it's always temporary. Like I feel like any sort of dis-ease or, you know, someone not, not trusting a design professional is short-lived or temporary once you're able to prove yourself, I think. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's that goes, I, I didn't say it, but I, I, it doesn't go without saying it should be said that the emphasis and the focus should be on the work. Maybe some disagree, but I've always found putting, I mean, even when I feel slighted or that there's a bias against, you know, women in the industry or against me in the, the room, whatever it is, rechanneling whatever that energy is into whatever the work product is to let the work product stand for itself. Because at the end of the day, whatever your deliverable is doesn't have a gender associated with it. So if you can make your product stand up as tall as any other, it's kind of irrelevant what the background was, except that you maybe bring a different lens of empathy through the process. Yes, very true. I agree with that 100%. One of the other things too that I've kind of thought of or learned over 20 some years of doing this is that you have to be yourself. And I think we kind of talked about that a little bit too with your niche market and kind of how you've focused on that. But I think that goes with everything. Like I remember when I first started out, I thought I had to wear like polo and khakis to work every day because that... (laughs) I chopped my hair off so it wouldn't (laughs) hang out of the hard hat. (laughs) So like, I think there was like... Yeah. conforming in non-conformist people, right? Yeah. You go through it. It's, it's natural. Yes. But yeah, finding your authenticity, finding your voice and, and letting that speak for speak for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one word that you've used regularly since we started talking is empathy. And I think that's something that can be a superpower sometimes and maybe isn't always prevalent in the construction industry. So I always feel like if you're, you know, if something's a little different about you, like, you should focus on that and like really lead into that because that's like the special thing that you're bringing to the table. That's your superpower. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Love it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. 
That's G-A-B-L-Media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from Within the Walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day I, i i don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one God. that came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.